Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delight, show 167. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Weather has abated for the while, for a little bit now. Apparently, we're going to get another cold front in this next weekend or something like that. But at the moment, we have no snow, which is, you know, thank God for that. But I hear that it's actually in America, you have snow over there as well. Hellish drifts and all sorts. So anyone out there who's suffering with the snow, my sincere thoughts go with you because it's, (laughs) you know what I mean, 44 and it's I'm too old for that game now. A couple of sledges down the hill, it's got me shattered anyway, so I'm glad it's all off and the heating's now turned back down, so I'm not, the pennies aren't falling out the house. Give you a little clue what's coming in today's show. A clue. <laughs> Give you a heads up what's coming in today's show. We have back again, explained in 60 seconds, Megan Arco hits with light speed. Then we have a fact article by Skeet, the artist from Starship Sova's Volumes 1 and 2. Skeet got his book and he's talking through the artists and everything like that in a little fact article. Then we have the fantastic Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Then the main fiction is Jack McDivitt, the Fort Moxie branch, and it's narrated by that man that picked up the award, the Hugo Award, Mr. Grant Stone. So that is a fun show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So before we jump into that main show, a little heads up here, some more heads up, more announcements or more to tell you a little bit things what are coming up in the show or what's going to come up in a few weeks' time. 
So next week, which is the kind of the twenty second, which is only a few days from Christmas, honestly was excitement there. Only a few days from Christmas, we're going to move the end of the month show which is the art show where we kind of highlight artwork. We're going to move that to that that week there. Then the, that week, the kind of the final week in December, which is the 29th of December, that is going to be the Meta Show. Now, this is where, honestly, there's some exciting news coming from uh, from Starship Solar HQ. Please do listen to that show. That's going to just tell you... Give, you know, just give a little kind of run back what's happened. You know, everyone knows kind of what happened over the year 2010. But there is some exciting stuff coming with Starships over in 2011. And that's really where I kind of set the ball rolling and everything's coming from that. And again, honestly, I can't stress enough. If you've got some ideas, you know, where you would like the Starships over to go, please. I've had loads of emails. Honestly, thank you everyone that sent in emails, you know, kind of just little ideas. That's all it takes, little ideas. And from them little ideas... We kind of whoop and away and we're off on another road or another journey. And if you listen and when you actually do listen to that meta show, again, ideas. Because once you kind of hear me plans for the future, then, do you know what I mean? It might spark even more kind of ideas. And honestly, starshipsover at gmail.com. Please get in touch because honestly, we have some such exciting news, you know, and all, like I say, people's help to get these ideas up and running. Do, you know, listen to that show. Another message that I want to get over is Starship Silver newsletter. Yes, we have a newsletter, and it's my intention to kind of bring this newsletter once a month, even maybe, you know, sneak another one out when we've got things to mention. But guess what? If you sign up for our newsletter, front of the page there, you'll see on the right-hand side, Starship Silver newsletter. If you sign up, you will get a free copy of Captain's Logs to download. How cool is that? So, there's no excuse now to get yourself a copy of the Captain's Logs. Please come over the front of the website, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll be taken to a page to get the PDF of Captain's Logs. Now, if you've already if you've already signed up, if I've been emailing you and you know you're on the list, you know I've got you on the list anyways, and you haven't got a copy, do drop us a line anyways, and I'll I'll send you the link to the page so you can get the copy. Do you know I don't want to kind of just because you're on the list, I've, I've shoved you on the list anyways. You know you've contacted us, you'll still honestly get a copy. So that's that's all sort of just email us. Do I get you know because like I say, one of these announcements that I'm going to start making is all to do you know is getting a name about. Please, Twitter and Facebook. I'm on there. I'm kind of active on there. Do follow us and say hello on Twitter and Facebook. And the big, the big shout out is, like I said, we've been sending out the emails. It's still time for the 2011 Sofa Note Award nomination round. Sometime in January, we will have the, the kind of the winners. And, you know, you've got to kind of make your nominations and get your vote counted if you want anybody in. If you don't vote and they don't get through, do you know what I mean? That's it's all it's all fun and games. So please, so do make sure you get a vote in and you nominate someone for the 2011 Sofa Note Awards. So first up, we have Megan Argo back again with Explained in 60 Seconds. Megan, Explained in 60 Seconds, Lightspeed. How fast does light really travel? It may look like the light reaches the corner of the room the same instant that you flick the switch, but in reality it takes time to get there. Communications sent using photons, either via satellite or over fibre optics, can go around the world pretty fast. 
but while the speed at which light travels is pretty spectacular, it is not infinite. In just one second, light travels almost 300,000 kilometers. That's almost as far as the moon. It took the Apollo astronauts a couple of days to travel the same distance. At that speed, light from our own sun takes more than eight minutes just to reach the Earth. You see the sun not where it is right now, but where it was 8.3 minutes ago. So if it were to disappear suddenly, it would be some time before we noticed. Luckily, this is very unlikely to happen, so there's no need to worry. Now there are some curious things about travelling at such a speed. The faster you go, the more energy you need to increase your speed. It's like running up a hill that gets steeper every time you try and run faster. As you try to go faster and faster, the amount of energy needed rises rapidly, so that by the time you get to the speed of light, you would need to have an infinite amount of energy. This is clearly impossible, so how can light travel at the speed of light? Simply, it has no mass. Anything that has mass can never reach the speed of light. So those spaceships you see flying around the galaxy? Sadly, such journeys will remain just science fiction. There you go. Thank you so much. I like that. I mean, explain 60 seconds, but it's not just quite 60 seconds. So, Megan, thank you so much. I've got some more work by Megan as well, which will come out. Do look out for that. So we have Mr. Skeet Sciensky, who's going to give a little fact article on Starship Sova Stories Volume 2. As you know, Skeet cover artists for 1 and 2. He will be, give you a little hint here, one of the cover artists for Volume 3. Skeet got his, you know, because I always wanted to make sure, you know, kind of people I looked after, kind of who are doing the actual product, do you know what I mean? And Skeet was one of them guys who kind of, you know what I mean, brings that stunning image to, to life. Steve got his copy of the book, and it's just like a little fact article, you know. And he actually, what's good about this article is, Skeet tells you about the artists as well, you know, and gives his, his impressions, because the book is like covered with artwork, you know, inside, outside, everywhere. So Skeet, sir... Hey there, Sopanauts. This is Skeet Sciansky. I just uh, found this thing under the Christmas tree. My wife decided to play a little Christmas hoax on me and hide this wonderful gift that I was uh, waiting so patiently upon uh, from Tony and Dee to send me. Um, but then I told her I needed to do a little audio thing about the artwork in the uh, in the book here for the Starship Sofas Volume Two, um, and then she grac- graciously explained that it was under the tree and already wrapped and pulled it out and let me get an early Christmas gift. So uh, here it is. I got it in my hand and I'm going to go ahead and open it up here. If I can find the right end of it. There she blows. Look at that. Even looks even looks good through the bubble wrap. Get this thing all the way open. Whoa! Hard back and all. Wow, that is pretty. Those colors just pop right off of there so well. I was absolutely thrilled um, when uh, Tony asked me to do this uh, second book for him. Uh, the, the first volume I, I had a lot of fun doing, and this one was even more fun because it was definitely uh, had a lot more sci-fi spice to it. But uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, open it up, take a look inside, and see what we got here. I have not seen any of this artwork, 
And I see I've got all the signatures here of the other, of the writers. And that is freaking awesome, man. Freaking awesome. A lot of these guys look like they were graffiti artists at one time. Either that or doctors. <laughs> uh, some pretty neat stuff, man. All right. Well, I am definitely going to take a nice, long, hard look at all this artwork. And I see there's just some exceptional stuff inside here. I'm so excited to get a real good study on and uh, look at this stuff for a while. I'm going to... I'm going to put my, uh, my words together here and uh, take a close, close look at it all, and I will get back to you in a few minutes here after I've done that and give you a quick review of the artwork I see inside. Talk to you in a few. Well, that was definitely, definitely something that I enjoyed immensely. I, uh, I looked through it for a couple hours in here. I didn't read anything yet, and I'm definitely looking forward to the, uh, the reading ahead of me. Um, I, what I did was go through and I uh, checked out each illustration, and uh, I, I got to tell you, Tony, uh, that you have some top-notch artists working on this thing. Um, it seems like every time you get a project together, um, you get better and better uh, people to work with you, and it's it's amazing that uh, the, the caliber of these people, and I'm really impressed that uh, the Starship Sopa has come so far. You know, I started listening um, shortly after you started your podcast, and um, just the way it's evolved, and to see um, how much um, uh, you know input you've got from from other artists and writers and people that have really uh, helped to build on this uh, thing you call the sofa. Um, it, it's just amazing, and, and and now you're at the level that you've uh, you've got a Hugo Award under your belt. I mean, that's that's got to be just the best feeling in the world to know that. Um, that you've accomplished so much and, and in really such a short period of time. Um, but what, what I'd like to do is uh, just briefly uh, touch on a few of the artists and uh, just uh, let everybody know who hasn't bought one of the books yet or had a chance to go online and download um, one, of the, uh, one of the books. Uh, I, I'd just like to go through and, and kind of uh, give you a heads up of uh, what artists there are um, and and, and what you'll have to look forward to seeing when you actually open up the book. Um, and, and I apologize ahead of time if I mispronounce some of the names. Some are pretty straightforward, and uh, some are are definitely uh, a, a little harder than, than others. So um, with that, uh, one thing I noticed was there was something, uh, in addition to this, this, this version uh, of Volume 2, that um, I didn't notice in, in Volume 1 was that uh, along with some of the the old ads uh, that were in there, like what you would find in old comic books or old magazines, um, there's uh, not only uh, illustrations for the stories, but you're also um, you know privileged to see some uh, some pinups, uh, as Tony's labeled them, just extra artwork that might not have anything to do with uh, the stories being presented in the in the book, but are definitely um, entertaining uh, pieces of art. Uh, that represent sci-fi, and that's what this is all about. So um, let me just mention a few here. Um, what happened, uh, you know, I went through and looked at each one individually um, in order, of course. I, every time I pick up a book, the first thing I do is look at the cover. I think most people do that, and that really can give you a, a huge insight into the story. And, you know, 
sometimes it can make a breaker story for me, um, just as far as quick interest. If the, if the title doesn't have something uh, that grabs me, if the art doesn't have something that grabs me, um, a lot of times I won't read it. So um, the, the first thing I look at is the art, and then I look at the title, and if those two things click in one way or the other, then I'm on to uh, the reading part of it all. Um, the, uh, the first artist that I saw in there was uh, Neil DeVokes, um, he's got this great sort of space ace, uh, style to his artwork. Um, and then there's, uh, Leigh Gallagher, uh, pen and ink, uh, his, uh, his ability to express terror on this, uh, person's face. That's this running from this huge machine, uh, really, uh, is well illustrated. Um, then there's, uh, Roy Kurtz, uh, he's got this very Eon Flux, sort of Asian style to his artwork, very smooth and fluid, um, and uh, very beautiful artwork. Um, of course, the, the first uh, pinup that I saw in there was by Ben Wooten, who's a fairly new artist to the sofa. He's been doing stuff uh, most of the last year. I, I do all the layouts for the magazine uh, up till uh, this month, and uh, I noticed that um, he's been doing more and more work. And i got to tell you, Ben Wooten is... Uh, probably one of the best artists I've seen in a long time. I mean, um, I don't know a lot about him personally, but uh, I've, I've looked into uh, his website and seen some of the stuff he's done, and it's just like, wow. I mean, just amazing, amazing artwork. Very three-dimensional, very rich uh, colors and animated scenes. Uh, makes you feel like you're really there. Uh, but this one little pinup he's got in there is, uh, uh, it's got some... Uh, some lizard man or reptilian man in there or beastly man in there. He's just uh, crazy looking. Um, and then we've got, uh, let's see, we've got uh, Cliff uh, Chang. He's uh, sort of a, he's got sort of a Batman animation style. If you like the uh, Batman animated series, he's uh, definitely got the a feel of that animation style to his artwork. Uh, we have Ian Miller. He's uh, got these crazy, crazy tight lined uh, hatching going on. And uh, I have to tell you, it's it's <laughs> it's some of the tightest lines I've seen in a long time. When I was in my early 20s, uh, when I was really just starting to get into pen and ink, I had broke out these little, these tiny little pens called Micron pens, and they're like 0 .05 millimeters. So just some of the tiniest little tips you can get. And I was doing these tiny little lines, and I had the greatest time doing that stuff. But I just don't have the patience for it anymore. And looking at his stuff really takes me back to that time when you just you have to have patience and you have to have a very steady hand and uh, a definite um, a definite idea of what you're gonna you're gonna do as uh, as the artwork progresses. You got to think ahead of time with that sort of stuff, and it's really amazing artwork. Um, then we also have, uh, and this is one of those names, Tom, uh, Tom Kaisabat, I think it is. Um, he's got this beautiful, beautiful. Uh, airbrushed Art Deco style it really captures the, the uh, that sort of 30s artwork, uh, you know. But it uh, really conveys a the, the cold feeling of what a robot should look like. But it's just this beautiful gradients of, of uh, airbrush style, and I'm not sure what the medium is on it there, but um, it, it looks airbrushed. It's uh, really beautiful artwork. Um, next we have. Uh, Jeff Murray, um, he, this drawing he did, it just makes me wonder what this story is all about. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's got a, a guy hanging in the background and this very obstinate looking female in the foreground just looking at you like, just daring you to, 
to come on board this ship and, and find out what the story is all about. Um, we also, um, let's see, we also had, uh, Len, uh, Peralta and, uh, his animation looks very fun. It looks like stuff I, I, um, I've dabbled into. I've, I've, I've drifted away from cartooning, but, um, this artist really, uh, captures the animated, uh, feel of, of, a, of a cartoon character where you can really tell he's jumping out of his skin. Um, there's, uh, there's so many different artists in here. Um, the different mediums and, and different styles. So it's really nice to see some very, very serious artwork and then also um, some very uh, laid-back and laxed artwork that seems like it didn't take a lot of effort but seemed like it was a lot of a lot of fun and, uh, you know, very three-dimensional uh, characters that can convey a story in their own right. Um, also, Jim Murray, uh, again, just beautiful spaceship, uh, orbiting some unknown war really reminded me of Halo. I don't know if he's a big Halo fan, but uh, the very detailed uh, spaceship that I was very impressed with. I, I have the hardest time with uh, machines and mechanics and trying to get things to look like they're, they're you know, man-made uh, things that actually work. And uh, he, it looks like he has no trouble whatsoever doing that sort of stuff. Uh, Stan Johnson, uh, he's got the, this rocket girl on there. Uh, looks like it's a, uh, a pinup girl from the future. Uh, <laughs> you gotta see this thing is, is, uh, seriously, uh, funny. Um, uh, yet, uh, you could tell it's very skillfully done. Um, Anton Emden, uh, a lot of these people know who he is already, uh, a mad magazine artist. Um, he's definitely, uh, taken on the, uh, the, the style of mad magazine and, and a lot of his art. And you can really see that, um, uh, character caricature type style where he's uh, making people look like they're, they're cartoons, but they have this flair of realism about them. Um, and there's uh, Daniel Serra, uh, he's a fantastic painter, very impressive. Uh, Boo Cook, uh, he brings the, uh, the love into sci-fi. You can, you can see he's, he's definitely a passionate artist, likes to draw uh, passionate things. I checked out some of his stuff online. Uh, a lot of very provocative artwork. If you're into that sort of thing, it's uh, uh, really good, good stuff. Um, Andreas uh, Rocha uh, just did this beautiful panoramic, and I'd love to see the original because the book is is not a huge, huge book. But you can tell a lot of these pieces obviously are, are much larger than what the page represents. So I would love to see the original of that uh, piece that um, uh, Andreas did. Uh, also, we've got uh, Michael Cho. Uh, he he's got a ton of stuff online, and um, I'd like to find out more about him. He's uh, got this very classic comic book style to his artwork, um, and I really enjoyed uh, taking the time to look at his stuff online to see what else he's done because he, he's got this uh, sort of a niche uh, type of of uh, art that um, uh, advertisers would just love. I mean, I, I can tell he's really into comics, but he's got this feel for it that just screams, you know, hey, I, uh, I should be doing advertising work because my illustrations just, you know, jump off the page. Um, uh, and then there's uh, Paul Rivoche, I think it is, or Rivoche. Um, again, I'm, I apologize for my uh, pronunciation of these names. Um, it reminds me of, uh, of some original Flash Gordon comics uh, done by Al Williamson. Uh, just very crisp lines. Um, got this uh, feeling of depth. That's something that a lot of artists will do with pen and ink, I've noticed, is they tend to 
uh, just overkill. They'll, they'll put so many lines into there. Uh, if you can pull it off, that's great. I mean, you, you're, you're above a lot of people, but a lot of artists will take uh, pen and ink lines and just fill it up, and they think they have to fill it up to make it look good. Um, and, and again, if you can't pull that off, it tends to look jumbled and, and just overdone. So um, it was it was refreshing to see uh, Paul's work because it's he's got this uh, he, he knows uh, you can tell he knows the boundaries of less is more. Uh, a lot of times you you've got to know when to say nothing belongs here, so you can create that depth. Um, or where detail should be, and then it fades off into nothing. You know, it's not like a painting where you can just do gradients. You have to be able to um, illustrate that with all lines, and that, to me, is much more difficult than, than painting. Um, uh, next, we have uh, Nate Rag, a uh, very interesting artist. He's, he, I think he's sort of an Impressionist-type uh, artist. I, um, the robot that he did there... Um, was really really cool. It reminds me of uh, a lot of the stuff you see in the '70s, where it's uh, uh, not so much cartoony, but um, definitely uh, represents um, a very uh, you know. Obviously, he's drawing a robot, but it, it seems like he's uh, you know got this uh, good grasp on on some of the more classic uh, '70s style uh, Art Deco-ish type artwork. Um, then there's Brian Thomas Wood, um, again another wonderful ink artist. Um, and th- this is the name that I, I dreaded saying. I tried to uh, pronounce it before I started doing this. Was Danny Joe Zelge? He's probably going to write me a, a mean hell, uh, hate letter after I uh, just slaughtered his name there. But um, he's uh, an abstract artist, uh, but very intense artist. Um, and that again, it was refreshing to see these these huge um, different styles, just extreme one end of the 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 uh, one end of the world to the other, you can tell that these are very, very different styles from this very interesting comic book art to pen and ink. And now we've got this abstract art that, um, is to me, it's just perfect for, for the, for the, uh, the story's, uh, title. Um, and then there's, uh, Joni, uh, uh, Caponin. Uh, it, it looks like something right out of Tron and I'm a big Tron fan. So I'm, I'm very anxious to read that story to see what that one's all about. Uh, Bob Eglinton, uh, uh, yet another wonderful ship design. Uh, I love these space scenes. Uh, to me, space can be very challenging to draw, believe it or not. It's not just a bunch of dots with a big circle in the middle saying this is a star. It really is hard to get depth in space, and, and uh, Bob really pulled that off. Uh, there's a lot of other artists uh, in here. Uh, quickly, I just wanted, I don't want to make this too long for Tony, but uh, Chris uh, Bachelot, uh, Evan uh, M. Jensen, Chris Butler, um, yeah, and then uh, I think lastly there was uh, Jason Paulos, uh, uh, which I also was impressed with. Uh, very classic uh, sword meets sci-fi type art. Um, all these artists were just a delight to uh, look at, and I'm, I'm really anxious to actually sit down and read these stories that uh, go along with them. Um, I, I'm uh, definitely honored to be able to do this uh, cover for Tony once again. And uh, I hope I get another chance to fulfill that uh, that dream of being able to actually have my stuff on a book cover. I think that's so much fun, and uh, I hope that um, I hope that uh, uh, Tony uh, keeps coming out with these uh, every year. I think it's a great idea. It's a good promotion for not only for his podcast, but to be able to get these other artists 
uh, and writers out there uh, and give them a chance to have some fun and uh, you know show that uh, show their support for the for the podcast and uh, just uh, entertain everybody. It's it's a, a great way to meet people as well and um, share this with uh, friends and and foes alike. Um, <laughs> uh, I just want to quickly mention uh, what my I ideas or my thoughts were about what I what I did for this cover um, obviously last time I, I just kind of put something together uh, off of a off of a whim but the the cover for uh, this uh, volume two I went ahead and uh, I took a little more thought with it and I had actually taken some older art that I had done in the past and uh, I combined it with a few other elements that Tony and I had, had spoke about and uh, I call this Cosmic Bungee. It's uh, something I messed around with probably 20 years ago or so and uh, did sketches. And uh, it was fun to actually finally have a chance to bring this to life and, and uh, make uh, you know, the idea of people always going bungee jumping off of bridges. Well, why not have you hooked to some sort of uh, energy line that shoots you through, uh, through space? You know, you go through wormholes and through all, the, all these different cosmic experiences and then you're, you're quickly pulled back to there and i'm not sure what the meaning behind it is other than just having it for a thrill uh but obviously in this image uh on the cover i went ahead and uh let a, a fair lady uh in her own little world here um or up above her own little world kind of uh doing some sort of exploration and and zip here comes this uh this cosmic bungee jumper uh zipping past her and she's just didn't know what to make of that but he's uh definitely heading somewhere and heading back at some point as well. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and just for a little pressure for Mr. Santoro there, I just want to <laughs> drop it in the hat if he gets the itch to uh, go ahead and write a story about this one. <laughs> I had so much fun reading the last time, uh, the last time uh, uh, Larry took on the, the gambit of um, writing a story about a, a cover, working backwards, as it were, um, I would love for him to do this again. So everybody write him and bug him to death until he just can't stand anymore. He says, finally, all right, I'll write a story, and it'll be awesome. So there it is. Um, and, and again, thank you, Tony, for uh, giving me this opportunity to uh, go over the artwork uh, for the listeners, and hopefully I'm enticing some of them to um, look up some of these artists and, and just check out what they've got and um, buy the book. It's a great support for the show. And, uh, and I endorse it full-fledged heartily. And um, hopefully everybody will have a, a great Christmas. And, uh, Tony, I hope you can dig yourself out of your, your driveway by now. And uh, take care, everybody. Bye. And can I just say it, you know, Skeet's actually <laughs> crediting me with the artwork, you know, like in choosing. Listen, uh, it was all, full stop, all D who sorted that artwork out, who kind of contacted the artwork. You know, I think it's a, it's a lot harder to kind of get the artwork together than the stories. You know, maybe I've kind of, I know the artists, you know, kind of, I know, sorry, know the writers more now. And it's, you know, kind of most, most of the people I kind of deal with, you know, kind of on a friendly email terms, know each other, you know, we know each other. But for the artwork, trust us. And it would chatting a little bit on email and on phone the other day, me and D. And he says he needs a good kind of three months, you know, crack at it to get the artwork sorted, you know, to get the kind of artists on board who are going to help and everything sorted. So just to let everyone know, D 
Dee did the artwork. Dee sorted out. You know what I mean? I kind of did the words. Dee the art. So hats off to Dee. What a fantastic job he did with that. And just to give you a little heads up as well, don't forget, if you go over to Lulu, there's some codes there that you can get discount on as well. So, listen, Starship Sofa's Volume 2, Under the Christmas Tree, would be a lovely little present for somebody. Some, somebody special. <laughs> so we come on to the fantastic Amy H. Sturgis with her December, looking back at genre history. Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, it's my privilege to talk about a work whose importance really can't be overstated. I can say, without any fear of hyperbole, that it is one of the most important works written in the 20th century, and its influence can be traced in some of the other most important works of the 20th century. I'm talking about the dystopian novel We, by the Russian author Yevgeny Zemyatin. In the new 2006 translation by Natasha Randall, the foreword is offered by author Bruce Sterling, and in that foreword, Sterling says, Yevgeny Zemyatin has a sound claim to the invention of the science fiction dystopia. Okay, first of all, that's wrong. There were a number of science fiction dystopias that preceded we. For example, Paris in the 20th Century by Jules Verne, the Iron Heel by Jack London, The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster, and The Sleeper Wakes by H.G. Wells. What Sterling might have said more effectively is that Zamyatin has the claim of pioneering the modern science fiction dystopia, because we is one of the first great books to deal with the totalitarian nation-state, and it also directly influenced some of the works we think of when we think of 20th century dystopian novels, such as Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, Anthem by Ayn Rand, 1984 by George Orwell, and Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut. Science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin has made a different claim, saying that we is, quote, the best single work of science fiction yet written. And I'm going to have to say I'm not prepared at this point to disagree with her. So, let's talk some more about We. We was completed by Yevgeny Zemyatin in 1921. This Russian author was deeply influenced by the Russian Revolution of 1905, the Russian Revolution of 1917, and after fleeing his homeland, his equally disillusioning experience working in the shipyards on the River Tyne in England during the First World War. He finished We in Russia in 1921. It was published in English in 1924, but it was immediately banned in Russia. And in fact, it remained censored until 1988. So, in fact, it was banned in the homeland of the author for over 60 years. In his essay, I Am Afraid, Zamyatin wrote, True literature can exist only where it is created, not by diligent and reliable officials, but by madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics. And certainly, we was seen as a subversive work, 
at the time, and arguably it is still extremely subversive today. The novel is set long in the future when the one state has taken over the world. Finished with the world, it's ready to move on to the rest of the solar system, and the main character is a state mathematician, an engineer who is engaged in the project of building the integral, a spaceship that will take the one state into the cosmos and bring it under the one state's power. Citizens of the one state live under constant surveillance by the secret police and its spies. The beautiful metaphor for this is that the buildings are almost completely made of glass, so everything is transparent, and everyone can see everyone else all the time. The design for this is sort of a parallel to the prison design developed by Jeremy Bentham, and commonly known as the Panopticon. You can see here the the Russian influence on Samyatin's writing, but he's also Influenced by the kind of efficiency models that he saw at work and considered to be dehumanizing in the shipyards in England, so Zamyatin bases the lockstep existence of the citizens on the ideas of F. W. Taylor, who was an American mechanical engineer who basically was the father of scientific management. And was one of the first management consultants in charge of industrial efficiency. Zamyatin saw this in practice, in a way, in the shipyards. In the novel, people wear identical clothing. They are referred to only by numbers. Males have odd numbers、uh, prefixed by a consonant, and females have even numbers prefixed by a vowel. And even the number of times the citizens chew when they're eating is dictated by law. Every second of the day is divided and ruled by the table of hours. And here I'd like to read just a short passage from the opening section of We. I've come to read and hear many unlikely things about the times when people lived in freedom, i.e., the unorganized, savage state. But the most unlikely thing, it seems to me, is this: How could the olden day governmental power, primitive though it was, have allowed people to live without anything like our table, without the scheduled walks, without the precise regulation of meal times, getting up and going to bed whenever it occurred to them? Various historians even say that apparently in those times lights burned in the streets all night long, and all night long people rode and walked the streets. This I just cannot comprehend in any way. Their faculties of reason may not have been developed, but they must have understood more broadly that living like that amounted to mass murder, literally. Only it was committed slowly, day after day. Already, you've probably picked up on some of the influences that would be felt in later works.、Uh, for example, the constant surveillance police state that would be shown in 1984. Or the characters whose names are in fact numbers, which we later see in the novel Anthem. Our main character D five o three is going along working on his project of the integral, 
carrying on something sort of like a romantic triangle, but not really, because people don't really have exclusive relationships, since everyone belongs to everyone else, and everyone is under the benefactor, the main leader, who incidentally is re-elected unanimously every year on Unanimity Day. People simply fill out forms and submit them when they wish to have sexual intercourse with someone else, so that at any given time, one might receive notice through the state bureaucracy that someone had、uh, claimed your evening. But nonetheless, he's going along with this、uh, sort of relationship with these two others, and then he meets、uh, a woman who's unlike anyone else he knows. And slowly, he becomes infatuated and obsessed with this woman, and she shows him that outside the green wall that separates the so-called civilized world from nature, there are actually other human beings living in other ways. He becomes a revolutionary thanks to her influence, but alas, not a successful one. Although he does manage to bring the integral project to a spectacular close, one of the many, many fascinating things about this novel is the fact that Zanyatin has his female characters, all of whom are secondary but fascinating, being the only characters who accomplish any of their goals. They're all subversive in very different ways, whether it's the revolutionary herself. Or the character who simply wants a child but does not have state sanction for that child. His male characters, including the protagonist, don't have the same kind of success. In the end, D five hundred three is subjected by the state to the great operation, which is much like a lobotomy, to cure him of the sickness of having a soul, and so he becomes a good citizen once again. But we're told repeatedly in we that no revolution is final, and we're left wondering if the forces that have been set in motion by D five hundred three. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And the other characters will, in fact, eventually carry away the benefactor and the one state or not. It isn't a hopeful ending by any stretch of the imagination, and in that it foreshadows works like 1984 and Brave New World, but it is somewhat an ambiguous one. At the heart of it all is, of course, like in all great science fiction, the question of what it means to be human. And for Zemyatin, one of these key aspects of humanity is the question of freedom. And we can see through the eyes of D-503 when he is most driven by and clouded by the one-state propaganda, just how chilling his perspective is. Here's a, another quote from D-503. Why is this dance beautiful? The answer, because it is a non-free movement, because the whole profound point of this dance lies precisely in its absolute aesthetic subordination, its perfect non-freedom. If, indeed, our ancestors were prone to dancing at the most inspired moments of their lives, religious mysteries, military parades, then all this can only mean one thing. The instinct for non-freedom from the earliest of times is inherently characteristic of humankind, and we, in our very contemporary life, are simply more conscious. Zamyatin deals with the notions of freedom and restraint throughout the work, and I want to point out, in particular, for the science fiction audience, how elegantly he does this through the ongoing metaphor of mathematics. The one state, we are told over and over again, works with mathematical precision, and all of the analogies and symbols that D-503 thinks of are mathematical in nature. But what's interesting, and Zamyatin is such a careful writer, this is clearly conscious, is that the one state is clearly selective in the kind of math it emphasizes. For example, the one state reveres Euclid, Pythagoras, Newton, Taylor, all the kinds of old-school mathematicians that were all about clarity and immutability. But if we pick up on the cues that D-503 gives us, we realize that the ideologists of the one state ignore the Gauches, the Einsteins, all of those whose work dealt with uncertainty and relativity. Even more interesting, the one-state engineers aren't even very good at the limited math that they do use, even though the whole mechanism of the society is supposedly built on it. There are a number of mathematical errors in the book. Um, D-503 himself, the man behind the integral, miscalculates the probability of being assigned to a particular lecture theater, and he miscalculates the proportion of the total population represented by the number of workers killed. There are very simple points where he makes an effort to describe things mathematically, and he's wrong. And so this, I think, is Zamyatin's great critique of the one state. He shows us an ideology, a mindset, a regime that's based on math and showing how it's selective in math and then showing that it's not very good at it really tells us that this regime that has no creativity, that keeps its members in lockstep, that has no 
place for the human imagination. It simply can't sustain itself. And here, perhaps, if nowhere else in the novel, there is a real sense of hope, even if that hope lies more in the incompetence of the bad guys than in the triumph of the good guys. This is an elegantly crafted work from beginning to end, and it's no surprise that authors for the last century have taken inspiration from it. I'd like to leave you with one last wrenching quote from We. Even among the ancients, the most mature among them knew that the source of right is might, that right is a function of power, and so we have the scales. On one side, a gram. On the other, a ton. On one side, I. On the other side, we, the one state. Is it not clear then that to assume that the I can have some rights in relation to the state is exactly like assuming that a gram can balance the scale against a ton? I hope all of you read and enjoy "We" by Yevgeny Zamyatin. I think it has many relevant things to say to us today. And I hope you'll join me again soon when we have another look back at genre history. There you go. And again, listen out to the meta show that's coming on the 29th. All to do with Amy H. Sturgis and all things like that. All big things will be happening on Starship Sova. The 29th is the date to look out for. Grab that show as soon as it comes out. If you have ideas, get straight back in touch with us. You know what I mean? There's going to be some exciting things happening. Amy, week in, week out, you're a big help to Starship Sova. Thank you so much. So we are on to the Jack McDivitt main fiction, and it is the Fort Moxie branch narrated by our very own Grant Stone. And if I was a fantastic planner, <laughs> we've actually got... <laughs> she's going to miss this totally. You know what I mean? You know, if someone's hinting at something like a Christmas present or a birthday present, don't tell it to me because I just kind of it goes straight over me, anything like that. But when you think I would kind of join the dots here and get the Jack McDivitt story that we have now and the Jack McDivitt 15 interrogation questions, wouldn't you think I would put them together? Mm? No, not this kiddie on the block. <laughs> But anyways, we have a Jack McDivitt interview as well coming, and I'll play that next, but you know, the next kind of Tuesday, next Tuesday, where did that come from? Next second week in January it will be when that'll be played. So listen out for that. And like I say, Mr. Grant Stone is narrating this fantastic story, and Grant has been very, very, he's been a very little busy boy. Go over to Botsign as Grant calls it, an internet native fanzine for fans. This is Grant's very own fanzine. Bot One <laughs> is our issue. One is out now. I'll put a link on to that so you can go over there. And we're going to get Grant on and we're going to kind of get some interviews with Grant and kind of give you a bigger, fuller picture of Bot, of the Bot sign that he's created there. And what's really good as well with Grandy, he, he's been a busy boy, definitely. He's got a story on at World SF. This is the website and the book that's kind of all being put together, or the books that are being put together by Charles Tan and Lavi Tidor. Please go over there. I'll put a link onto World SF. This is a great site. You know what I mean? Science fiction from around the world. This grand story is called The Salt Line, and there's a link on as well to that particular story. 
So, Grant, congratulations on that. That's just an achievement in itself. Well done, sir. And well done, World SF. They're just a great little organisation there, putting out some fantastic work. Lavi, Charles, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. So, the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Fort Moxie Branch by Jack McDevitt A few minutes into the blackout, the window in the single dormer at the top of Will Potter's house began to glow. I watched it from across Route 11, through a screen of box elders, and through the snow which had been falling all afternoon and was now getting heavier. It was smeary and insubstantial, not the way a bedroom light would look, but as though something luminous floated in the dark interior. Will Potter was dead. We'd put him in the graveyard on the other side of the expressway three years before. The property had lain empty since, a two-story frame dating from about the turn of the century. The town had gone quiet with the blackout. Somewhere a dog barked and a garage door banged down. Ed Kien and station wagon rumbled past, headed out towards Cavalier. The street lights were out, as was the traffic signal down at 12th. As far as I was concerned, the power could have stayed off. It was trash night. I was hauling out cartons filled with copies of Independence Square, and I was on my way down the outside staircase when everything had gone dark. The really odd thing about the light over at Potter's was that it seemed to be spreading. It had crept outside. The dormer began to burn with a steady, cold, blue-white flame. It flowed gradually down the slope of the roof, slipped over the drain pipe, and turned the corner of the porch. Just barely, in the illumination, I could make out the skewed screens and broken stone steps. It would have taken something unusual to get my attention that night. I was piling the boxes atop one another, and some of the books had spilled out into the street. My name glittered on the bindings. It was a big piece of my life. Five years, and a quarter million words, and, in the end, most of my life's savings to get it printed. It had been painful, and I was glad to be rid of it. So I was standing on the curb, feeling sorry for myself while snow whispered out of a sagging sky. The tasty freeze, Howell's lumber, the Emico at the corner of 19th and Bannister were all dark and silent. Toward the centre of town, blinkers and headlights misted in the storm. It was a still, somehow motionless night. The flakes were blue in the pale glow surrounding the house. They fell onto the gabled roof and spilled gently off the back. Cass Taylor's station wagon ploughed past headed out of town. He waved. I barely noticed. The back end of Potter's house had begun to balloon out. I watched it, fascinated, knowing it to be an illusion, yet still half expecting it to explode. The house began to change in other ways. Roof and corner lines wavered. New walls dropped into place. The dormer suddenly ascended in the top of the house with it. A third floor, complete with lighted windows and a garret, appeared out of the snow. In one of the illuminated rooms, someone moved. Parapets rose, and an oculus formed in the centre of the garret. A bay window pushed out of the lower level, near the front. An arch and portico replaced the porch. Spruce trees materialised, and Potter's old post-light, which had never worked, blinked on. The box elders were bleak and stark in the foreground. I stood, worrying about my eyesight, holding on to a carton, feeling the snow against my face and throat. Nothing moved on Route 11. I was still standing there when the power returned. The street lights, the electric sign over Hal's office, the security lights at the Amoco, gunshots from a TV, 
the sudden inexplicable rasp of an electric drill, and at the same moment the apparition clicked off. I could have gone to bed. I could have hauled out the rest of those goddamn books, attributed everything to my imagination and gone to bed. I'm glad I didn't. The snow cover in Potter's backyard was undisturbed. It was more than a foot deep beneath the half inch or so that had fallen that day. I struggled through it to find the key he'd always kept wedged beneath the loose hasp near the cellar stairs. I used it to let myself in through the storage room at the rear of the house, and I should admit that I had a bad moment when the door shut behind me and I stood among the rakes and shovels and boxes of nails. Too many late TV movies. Too much Stephen King. I'd been here before, years earlier when I'd thought that teaching would support me until I was able to earn a living as a novelist. I'd picked up some extra money by tutoring Potter's boys. But that was a long time ago. I'd brought a flashlight with me. I turned it on and pushed through into the kitchen. It was warmer in there, but that was to be expected. Potter's ears were still trying to sell the place, and it gets too cold in North Dakota to simply shut off the heat altogether. Cabinets were open and bare. The range had been disconnected from its gas mooring and dragged into the centre of the room. A church calendar hung behind a door. It displayed March 1986, the month of Potter's death. In the dining room, a battered table and three wooden chairs were pushed against one wall. A couple of boxes lay in a corner. With a bang, the heater came on. I was startled. A fan cut in, and warm air rushed across my ankles. I took a deep breath and played the beam toward the living room. I was thinking how different a house looks without its furnishings, how utterly strange and unfamiliar, when I realised I wasn't alone. Whether it was a movement outside the circle of light, or a sudden indrawn breath or the creak of a board, I couldn't have said. But I knew. Who's there? I asked. The words hung in the dark. Mr. Wickham? It was a woman. Hello, I said. I, uh, I saw lights and thought, Of course. She was standing back near the kitchen, silhouetted against outside light. I wondered how she could have got there. You were correct to be concerned. But it's quite all right. She was somewhat on the grey side of middle age, attractive, well-pressed, the sort you would expect to encounter at a bridge party. Her eyes, which were on a level with mine, watched me with good humour. My name is Coela. She extended her right hand. Gold bracelets clinked. I'm happy to meet you. I tried to look as though nothing unusual had occurred. How did you know my name? She touched my hand, the one holding the flashlight, and pushed it gently aside so she could pass. Please follow me, she said. Be careful. Don't fall over anything. We climbed the stairs to the second floor and went into the rear bedroom. Through here, she said, opening a door that should have revealed a closet. Instead, I was looking into a brightly illuminated space that couldn't possibly be there. It was filled with books, paintings and tapestries, leather furniture and polished tables. A fireplace crackled cheerfully beneath a portrait of a monk. A piano played softly. Chopin, I thought. This room won't fit, I said stupidly. The thick quality of my voice startled me. No, she agreed. We're attached to the property, but we're quite independent. We stepped inside. Carpets were thick underfoot. Where the floors were exposed, they were lustrous parquet. Vaulted windows looked out over Potter's backyard and M. Pyle's house next door. Coela watched me thoughtfully. Welcome, Mr. Wickham, she said. 
Her eyes glittered with pride. Welcome to the Fort Moxie branch of the John of Singletary Memorial Library. I looked around for a chair and, finding one near a window, lowered myself into it. The falling snow was dark, as though no illumination from within the glass touched it. I don't think I understand this, I said. I suppose it is something of a shock. Her amusement was obvious, and sufficiently infectious that I loosened up somewhat. Are you the librarian? She nodded. Nobody in Fort Moxie knows you're here. What good is a library no one knows about? That's a valid question, she admitted. We have a limited membership. I glanced around. All the books looked like Bibles. They were different sizes and shapes, but all were bound in leather. Furthermore, titles and authors were printed in identical silver script. But I saw nothing in English. The shelves near me were packed with books whose lettering appeared to be Russian. A volume lay open on a table at my right hand. It was in Latin. I picked it up and held it so I could read the title. History, 5-12, to 12, Tacitus. Okay, I said. It must be limited. Hardly anyone in Fort Moxie reads Latin or Russian. I held up the Tacitus. I doubt even Father Kramer could handle this. Empile, the next-door neighbour, had come out onto his front steps. He called his dog, Preach, as he did most nights at this time. There was no response, and he looked up and down 19th Street, into his own backyard, and right through me. I couldn't believe he didn't react. Koela, who are you exactly? What's going on here? She nodded, in the way that people do when they agree that you have a problem. Perhaps, she said. You should look around, Mr. Wickham. Then it might be easier to talk. She retired to a desk and immersed herself in a sheaf of papers, leaving me to fend for myself. Beyond the Russian shelves I found Japanese or Chinese titles, I couldn't tell which, and Arabic, and German, French, Greek, more Oriental. English titles were in the rear. They were divided into American and British sections, Dickens, Cowper and Shakespeare on one side, Holmes, Dreiser and Steinbeck on the other. And almost immediately the sense of apprehension that had hung over me from the beginning of this business sharpened. I didn't know why. Certainly the familiar names in a familiar setting should have eased my disquiet. I picked up Melville's Agatha and flipped through the pages. They had the texture of fine rice paper, and the leather binding lent a sense of timelessness to the book. I thought about the cheap cardboard that Crossbow had provided for Independence Square. My God, this was the way to get published. Immediately beside it was the complete works of James McCorbin. Who the hell was James McCorbin? There were two novels and eight short stories. None of the titles was familiar, and the book contained no biographical information. In fact, most of the writers were people I'd never heard of. Kemery Baxter, Wynne Gomez, Michael Caspar. There was nothing unusual about that, of course. Library shelves are always filled with obscure authors. But the lush binding and the obvious care expended on these books changed the rules. I took down Hemingway's Watch by Night. I stared a long time at the title. The prose was vintage Hemingway. The crisp, clear bullet sentences and the factual journalistic style were unmistakable. Even the setting, Italy, 1944. Henry James was represented by Brandenburg. There was no sign of the ambassadors or the portrait of a lady or Washington Square. 
In fact, there was neither Moby Dick nor Billy Budd. Nor the sun also rises, nor a farewell to arms. Thoreau wasn't represented at all. I saw no sign of Fenimore Cooper or Mark Twain. What kind of library had no copy of Huck Finn? I carried Watch by Night back to the desk where Koala was working. This is not a Hemingway book, I said, lobbing it onto the pile of papers in front of her. She winced. The rest of them are bogus too. What the hell's going on? I can understand that you might be a little confused, Mr. Wickham, she said, a trifle nervously. I'm never sure quite how to explain. Please try your best, I said. She frowned. I'm part of a cultural salvage group. We try to ensure the things of permanent value don't, ah, uh, get lost. She pushed her chair back and gazed steadily at me. Somewhere in back, a clock ticked ponderously. The book you picked up when you first came in was... She paused. Mislaid, almost two thousand years ago. The Tacitus? The histories, five through twelve. We also have his annals. Who are you? She shook her head. A kindred spirit, she said. Seriously? I'm being quite serious, Mr. Wickham. What you see around you is a treasure of incomparable value that, without our efforts, would no longer exist. We stared at each other for a few moments. Are you saying, I asked, that these are all lost masterpieces by people like Tacitus, that this, I pointed at watch by night, is a bona fide Hemingway? Yes, she said. We faced one another across the desktop. There's a Melville back there, too, and a Thomas Wolfe. Yes, her eyes were bright with pleasure. All of them. I took another long look around. Thousands of volumes filled the shelves, packed tight, reaching to the ceiling. Others were stacked on tables. A few were tossed almost haphazardly on chairs. Half a dozen stood between Trojan horse bookends on Koela's desk. It's not possible, I said, finding the air suddenly close and oppressive. How? How could it happen? Quite easily, she said. Melville, as a case in point, became discouraged. He was a customs inspector at the time Agatha first came to our attention. I went all the way to London specifically to allow him to examine my baggage on the way back. In 1875, that was no easy journey, I can assure you. She waved off my objection. Well, that's an exaggeration, of course. I took advantage of the trip to conduct some business with Matthew Arnold and... Well, I'm name-dropping now. Forgive me. But think about having Melville go through your luggage. Her laughter echoed through the room. I was quite young. Too young to understand his work, really. But I'd read Moby Dick and some of his poetry. If I'd known him then, the way I do now, I don't think I could have kept my feet. She bit her lower lip and shook her head, and for a moment I thought she might indeed pass out. And he gave you the manuscript, simply because you asked for it? No, because I knew it for what it was, and he understood why I wanted it. And why do you want it? You have it buried here. She ignored the question. You never asked about the library's name. The John of Singletary. Memorial. Okay, who's John of Singletary? That's his portrait facing the main entrance. It was a large oil of an introspective monk. His hands were buried in dark brown robes, 
and he was flanked by a scroll and a crucifix. He was perhaps the most brilliant sociologist who ever lived. I've never heard of him. That's no surprise. His work was eventually ruled profane by his superiors, and either burned or stored away somewhere. We've never been sure, but we were able to obtain copies of most of it. She was out of her seat now, standing with her back to the portrait. What is significant is that he defined the state toward which he felt the human community should be advancing. He set the parameters and the goals for which the men and women whose works populate this library have been striving. The precise degree of balance between order and freedom, the extent of one's obligation to external authority, the ethical and emotional relationships that should exist between human beings, and so on. Taken in all, he produced a schematic, the civilized life, a set of instructions, if you will. The human condition, I said. How do you mean? He did all this, and no one knows him. We know him, Mr. Wickham, she paused. I found myself glancing from her to the solemn figure in the portrait. You asked why we wanted Agatha. The answer is that it is lovely, that it is very powerful. We simply will not allow it to be lost. But who will ever get to see it here? You're talking about a novel that, as far as anyone is concerned, doesn't exist. I have a friend in North Carolina who'd give every nickel he owns to see this book. If it's legitimate. We will make it available. In time, this library will eventually be yours. A wave of exhilaration washed over me. Thank you, I said. I'm sorry, she said quickly. That may have been misleading. I didn't mean right now, and I didn't mean you. When? When the human race fulfills the requirements of John of Singletary. When you have, in other words, achieved a true global community. All of this will be our gift to you. A gust of wind rattled the windows. That's a considerable way off, I said. We must take the long view. Easy for you to say. We have a lot of problems. Some of this might be just what we need to get through. This was once yours, Mr. Wickham. Your people have not always recognized value. We are providing a second chance. I'd expect you to be grateful. I turned away from her. Most of this baffles me, I said. Who's James McCorbin? You've got his complete works back there with Melville and the others. Who is he? A master of the short story. One of your contemporaries, but I'm afraid he writes in a style and with a complexity that will go unappreciated during his lifetime. You're telling me he's too good to get published. I was aghast. Oh, yes, Mr. Wickham. You live in an exceedingly commercial era. Your editors understand that they cannot sell champagne to beer drinkers, and they buy what sells. And that's also true of the others? Kemery Baxter, Gomez, Parker? I'm afraid so. It's quite common, in fact. Baxter is an essayist of the first order. Unlike the other two, he has been published, but by a small university press, in an edition that sank quickly out of sight. Gomez has written three exquisite novels, but has since given up, despite our encouragement. Parker is a poet. If you know anything about the markets for poetry, I need say no more. We wandered together through the library. She pointed to lost works by Sophocles and Aeschylus, to missing epics of the Homeric cycle, to shelves full of Indian poetry and Roman drama. On the upper level, she said, raising her eyes to the ceiling, 
are the songs and tales of artists whose native tongues had no written form. They've been translated into our own language. In most cases, we were able to preserve their creators' names. And now I have a surprise. We had reached the British section. She took down a book and handed it to me. William Shakespeare. Here's Zenobia, she said, her voice hushed, written at the height of his career. I was silent for a time. And why was it never performed? Because it's a savage attack on Elizabeth. Even he might well have lost his head. We have a major epic by Virgil that was withheld for much the same reason. In fact, that's why the Russian section is so large. They've been producing magnificent novels in the tradition of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky for years. But they're far too prudent to offer them for publication. There were two other Shakespearean plays. Adam and Eve was heretical by the standards of the day, Coela explained. And here's another that would have raised a few eyebrows. She smiled. It was Nisus and Euryllus. The characters were out of the Aeneid. Homosexual love, she said. But he wanted these withheld, I objected. There's a difference between works that have been lost and those a writer wishes to destroy. You published these against his will. Oh, no, Mr. Wickham, we never do that. To begin with, if Shakespeare had wanted these plays destroyed, he could have handled that detail quite easily. He desired only that they not be published in his lifetime. Everything you see here, she included the entire library with a sweeping feminine gesture, was given to us voluntarily. We have very strict regulations on that score, and we do things strictly by the book. In some cases, by the way, we perform an additional service. We are able, in a small way, to reassure those great artists who have not been properly recognized in their own lifetimes. I wish you could have seen Melville. You could be wrong, you know. Her nostrils widened slightly. About what? Maybe books that get lost deserve to be lost. Some do. Her tone hardened. None of those is here. We exercise full editorial judgment. We close at midnight, she said, appearing suddenly behind me while I was absorbed in the Wells novel, Starflight. I could read the implication in her tone. Never to open again. Not in Fort Moxie. Not for you. I returned Wells and moved quickly along, pulling books from the shelves with a sense of urgency. I glanced through Mendal, an unfinished epic by Byron dated 1824, the year of his death. I caught individually brilliant lines and tried to commit some of them to memory and proceeded on to Blake, to Fielding, to Chaucer. At a little after eleven I came across four Conan Doyle stories. The Adventure of the Grim Footman, The Branmore Club, The Giselle Bullet, The Sumatran Clipper. My God, what would the Sherlockians of the world not give to have those? I hurried on with increasing desperation, as though I could somehow gather the contents into myself and make them available to a waiting world. God and Country by Thomas Wolfe. Fresh cartoons by James Thurber, recovered from beneath wallpaper in a vacation home he'd rented in Atlantic City in 1947. Plays by Odets and O'Neill, short stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne and Terry Carr. Here was more dangerous visions. And there, Mary Shelley's Morgan. As I whirled through the rice paper pages, balancing the airy moonlit lines of A. E. Houseman with the calibrated shafts of Mencken, I envied them, 
envied them all, and I was angry. You have no right, I said at last, when Koela came to stand by my side, indicating that my time was up. No right to withhold all this? There was a note of sympathy in her voice. Not only that, I said. Who are you to set yourself up to make such judgments, to say what is great and what pedestrian? To my surprise, she did not take offence. I've asked myself that question many times. We do the best we can. We were moving toward the door. We have quite a lot of experience, you understand. The lights dimmed. Why are you really doing this? It's not for us, is it? Not exclusively. What your series produces belongs to all. Her smile broadened. Surely you would not wish to keep your finest creations to yourselves. Your people have access to them now. Oh, yes, she said. Back home everyone has access. As soon as a new book is catalogued here, it's made available to everybody. Except us. We will not do everything for you, Mr. Wickham. She drew close, and I could almost feel her heartbeat. Do you have any idea what it would mean to our people to recover all this? I'm sorry. For the moment there's really nothing I can do. She opened the door for me, the one that led into the back bedroom. I stepped through it. She followed. Use your flashlight, she said. We walked through the long hallway and down the stairs to the living room. She had something to say to me but seemed strangely reluctant to continue the conversation. And somewhere in the darkness of Will Potter's place, between the magic doorway in the back of the upstairs closet and the broken stone steps off the porch, I understood. And when we paused on the concrete beside the darkened postlight and turned to face each other, my pulse was pounding. It's no accident that this place became visible tonight, is it? She said nothing. Nor that only I saw it. I mean, there wouldn't be a point in putting your universal library in Fort Moxie unless you wanted something, right? I said this was the Fort Moxie branch. The central library is located on St. Simon's Island. The brittleness of the last few moments melted without warning. But no, you're right, of course. You want Independence Square, don't you? You want to put my book in there with Thomas Wolfe and Shakespeare and Homer, right? Yes, she said. That's right. You've created a powerful psychological drama, Mr. Wickham. You've captured the microcosm of Fort Moxie and produced a portrait of small-town America that has captured the imagination of the board and, I might add, of our membership. You will be interested, by the way, in knowing that one of your major characters caused the blackout tonight. Jack Gilbert, I said. How'd it happen? Can you guess? An argument with his wife, somehow or other. Gilbert who had a different name, of course, in Independence Square, had a long history of inept philandering. Yes. Afterward, he took the pickup and ran it into the streetlight at 11th and Foster, shorted out everything over an area of 40 square blocks. It's right out of the book. Yes, I said. But he'll never know he's in it. Nor will any of the other people you've immortalised. Only you know. And only you would ever know were it not for us. She stood facing me. The snow had stopped, and the clouds had cleared away. The stars were hard and bright in her eyes. We think it unlikely that you will be recognised in your own lifetime. We could be wrong. We were wrong about Faulkner. Her lips crinkled into a smile. 
but it is my honour to invite you to contribute your work to the library. I froze. It was really happening. Emerson, Hemingway, Wickham. I loved it. And yet, there was something terribly wrong about it all. Coela, I asked, have you ever been refused? Yes, she said cautiously. Occasionally it happens. We couldn't convince Cather of the value of Ogden's bequest. Charlotte and Emily Bronte both rejected us to the world's loss. And Tolstoy. Tolstoy had a wonderful novel from his youth which he considered, well, anti-Christian. And among the unknowns, has anyone just walked away? No, she said. Never. In such a case, the consequences would be especially tragic. Sensing where the conversation was leading, she'd begun to speak in a quicker tempo, at a slightly higher pitch. A new genius who would sink into the sea of history, as Byron says, without a grave, unknelled, uncoffined and unknown. Is that what you are considering? You have no right to keep this to yourself. She nodded. I should remind you, Mr. Wickham, that without the intervention of the library, these works would not exist at all. I stared past her shoulder, down the dark street. Are you, then? She said at last, drawing the last word out. Refusing? This belongs to us, I said. It is ours. We produced everything back there. She looked solemnly at me. I almost anticipated, feared, this kind of response. It may have been implicit in your book. Will you grant us permission to add Independence Square to the library? Breathing was hard. I must regretfully say no. I'm sorry to hear it. I... You should understand that there will be no second offer. I said nothing. Then I fear we have no further business to transact. At home... I carried the boxes back up to my living room. After all, if it's that damned good, there has to be a market for it, somewhere. And if she's right about rampant commercialism, well, what the hell? I pulled one of the copies out and put it on the shelf, between Walt Whitman and Thomas Wolfe, where it belongs. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Jack McDivitt's. Jack, Grant, thank you so much. Don't forget, Grant, go over there to Botzain, a, a fanzine he's created. That's going very well. And don't forget, World SF. Links on the front of the website. That's your baby. That's the show, 167. I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget, email list to get a copy of, a PDF copy, free copy of the Captain's Log. Just go there, sign up for the list. You want to be on the list, honestly. Some good things are coming to Starship Sova, and you'll you'll miss out. You'll certainly miss out if you don't kind of know about it. You'll get to know what all these good things are coming to Starship Sova on the Meta Show on the 29th. Don't forget again. Twitter and Facebook if you want to keep in touch. If you want to drop me an email. And honestly, just to say hello. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm just here by myself. Do you know what I mean? That's the, the kind of strange thing about it. I'm sitting here. Hello. There's no bugger here. You know what I mean? There's just me and the dogs today. Kids are at school and my good wife's at work. Please, 
Drop us an email. Just say if you're enjoying it. If you're not enjoying it, do you know what I mean? Keep us on the right track. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.